and thank you for listening to Roots and Wings, a podcast produced by the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth. I'm Jonquil Newland, the director of Kids Central TN. On this episode of Roots and Wings, we're going to dive into the context of social and emotional learning. Now, if you're an educator, odds are you've heard this term a lot recently. And if you're not an educator, you may not know what SEL means and how it impacts every child and adult who works with children. Now, to help me with this conversation, I'm joined by Elandriel Lewis. Elandriel works with the United Way of Metropolitan Nashville as the manager of early learning initiatives. Elandriel, thank you so much for being a guest on Roots and Wings today. Thank you so much for having me, John Cole. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, so let's dive right into it, shall we? Now, for our listeners who are unfamiliar, SEL stands for Social Emotional Learning. Elandriel, can you talk a little bit about what social emotional learning actually is. Yeah. So um, like you mentioned, you know, uh, social emotional learning right now, SEL has is kind of a big buzzword in education in general right now. And, uh, you know, in education, programs come and programs go. So I know there's a lot of educators out there who maybe aren't paying as much attention to it as, as they might otherwise, because they're wondering if maybe it's just another type of program, right? Um, but SEL is actually um, really, for me, um, as an educator, the, the foundation of where learning comes from because um, children biologically cannot learn if they do not feel safe and they do not feel loved, which requires the adults to have managed their own self-awareness and self-regulation skills um, so they can you know, create a space essentially for students to um, to be themselves in a classroom and um, let, their, let their armor, take their armor off, as Brene Brown says. Um, and then on the flip side of that, to then also learn um, the skills necessary for them to be self-aware and to practice self-regulation so that if they don't, say, get along with somebody in a group project, they can still work in that group project. They know how to focus um, and maintain their attention and set goals and achieve those goals. And all of those are wrapped up into that SEL package. Let me bring it back just a little bit because those were a lot of words. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> no, and it's perfect because I think, you know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like teaching by example of just being a good very person. Much so. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, I, I will say there are a lot of SCL programs out there right now that are very much... Um, activity-based, for lack of a better word, where uh, it's, here, teach your kids this skill, and they'll learn empathy. Um, But it's not focused so much on the adults at all. And, I mean, we know that kids learn not just through direct instruction, but largely through modeling as well. And SEL not only is no different from that, but actually I would think that's amplified with social-emotional learning. If I'm going to teach you what composure looks like, but I'm going to lose my composure on a regular basis, you're not going to learn how to make maintain your composure and you're not going to think it's important to either. So I, as an adult, then have to learn myself how to maintain my composure so that I can model and explain that to you. This is one of those areas where those who can't do teach does not work. When you think about um, social and emotional learning and and how leading by example with this, uh, the training that people go through, you mentioned how this is a hot buzzword, for lack of better terms, right now. Why is it now? Is it something that's happening? Is there some legislation, rather, policies? Why is all of a sudden social and emotional learning becoming a buzzword? 
Right. So, I mean, there there have definitely been um, some things happening at, at local and state levels in terms of legislation and whatnot. But really, um, you know, uh, what I see is that the, the brain science that we have access to now is dramatically different than what we had access to, say, when I started teaching in the 90s. Um, all this science actually was being done back in the 90s, but it takes about 20 years for research to hit practice, right? And so with this is actually a great time to be an educator. I tell my teachers, this as much as I can because we have the access to all this brain science that tells us how kids learn, how to, you know, correctly teach things like reading and whatnot, as well as understand why we can't just um, stand in front of a class and lecture and expect kids to get something from it. Um, you know, from the granular idea that we have to, you know, um, learn by doing is is a much better way of doing things, but also that coming back to the basis of social emotional learning, that kids biologically, like they literally can't learn if um, they feel a threat either, um, you know, emotionally in the sense of I don't feel safe with you, or even in if their body is giving them threats that there might be something to their actual physical safety, which there might not be, but we don't know what necessarily may trigger a child, particularly one with trauma. And so if they don't feel safe, um, or that they belong, it literally um, will shut down the higher level centers of the brain. And, and not so much, I should back up a little bit, not so much shut down, but really circumvent those higher level centers of the brain that are responsible for higher order thinking and complex problem solving and emotional regulation, because the body's not concerned about all of that. The body wants to stay safe. And so it's going to shunt everything into um, into things like your fight and flight mechanisms. When you talk about this, Elandriel, I, I think a little bit about uh, sometimes when I hear stories of students, uh, my mother's a teacher and uh, she's been a teacher my entire life. I'm in my mid thirties now, but I can, I can honestly say that she will come home and I would hear stories of what's going on in the classroom just in regards with these students' lives at home. And I think this is a good example uh, just to kind of let our viewers know, we're talking about those students who maybe have a quiz placed in front of them, but they're, they their, their moms are fighting or their parents are fighting the day before their dad walked out. They don't know if they're that's kind of is that kind of what you're talking about? Just the emotional stress they're under at that moment as they're in the classroom attempting to learn. And, and yeah. And so for those kids who are going through um, some types of trauma at home, this is exceptionally important for them. But the truth is, it's really good for all kids, because even kids who come from what we term family privilege, um, I'm putting air quotes around that, your listeners can't hear that, but that family privilege, um, which is, you know, no matter um, when or how they ask, am I safe or am I loved, the answer is always yes, which is irrespective of socioeconomic background. Um, <clears throat> but so even for those kids who come from that family privilege, um, they still, the school's stressful, right? Sitting indoors for, you know, eight hours a day, having to um, be expected to focus for much longer periods of time than adults are expected to focus at work a lot of times, um, then be able to have to take their work home with them in the form of homework, um, as well as your kids who, you know, are overscheduled, you know, it looks like they've got great lives, but they've got soccer and music practice and all. That's a lot on their little developing bodies. And that's stressful. 
So that stress in itself, you know, can also cause issues with learning. But it's also, like you mentioned, especially important for those kiddos who've got stuff going on at home. Social and emotional learning is is obviously right now taking a, a big stance in schools because that's where the majority of students spend most of their day. Why is it so important to have those in the schools? And how is there a possibility or an opportunity to move it to the home as well? And, well, and that's the ultimate goal. Absolutely. Um, and it's making sure that we have connections, good, solid connections between home and school because um, parents are the first teachers. Um, and it, it does take a village, I mean, to, to you know, borrow that phrase. Um but, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the big reasons that we see it um, sort of coming to the fore in um, our schools and, and educational systems is because a, I, I think it's a lot to do with that brain research that I mentioned. You know, we're really seeing that um, kids, one of the reasons kids aren't doing well in school is because they're dealing with a lot of other stuff. You know, if you're worried about if you're going to be able to eat when you get home or if mom or dad are going to get deported or whatever that might be, that's a lot of things taking up your little brain. Even if your little brain's 15 years old, you know, it's still developing. Your brain doesn't stop developing till you're 25. And so so all of that is really taxing um, and it takes energy away from, you know, the work that we want them to be doing well in school, which is is that academic work. You know, plus the flip side of that is, you know, I think a lot of us are really um, I mean, I think a lot of us have known this for a really long time, but we're becoming more and more invested in as systems in the whole child and understanding that if we want we don't want to just create somebody who can, you know, do algebra later on, but somebody that can think critically that can be a productive member of society in all the ways that our increasingly complex society requires. Um, And that requires more than just those academic basics. When you think about supporting SEL training and getting the word out there a little bit more, specifically in school districts, how is the United Way of Metropolitan Nashville working to help that happen? Um, in, a, in a couple of ways. So um, we love the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth <laughs> um, because of um, your uh, Building Strong Brains initiative. And so... Um, Myself my, and a couple of my coworkers are uh, trainers, uh, ACES trainers um, with the commission. And so we work um, just on that level on spreading the, the word of, of trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive practices in that respect. Um, but we also do a lot of work um, with uh, a program called Conscious Discipline, which is a social-emotional program for all ages, um, including adults. Um, it's the curriculum that we use within the um uh, child care centers, uh, early childhood centers that we support within our Read to Succeed program. And then my coworker Annie and I do a lot of training with not just um, the teachers and administration within our centers, but also within the community as well. Um, and between um, both of those, you know, we I also do training um, around trauma sensitive practices within the work of uh, Matt Bennett, um, whose uh, new book just came out last week. I'll be presenting with him at, at NACI and just um, which is the National Association for the Education of Young Children. Their national conference is coming next month. And so just really the more opportunities that we have to spread this work you know, um, the the word about trauma-sensitive practices, which SCL is a part of, um, you know, we're working on doing that. We at United Way um, uh, do a lot of work to support the uh, Blueprint for Early Childhood Success, um, which is, um, you know, an initiative uh, out of the, the mayor's office. And 
we um, one of our big things with the blueprint is um, supporting um, more of our children to be reading on grade level by third grade. And, you know, for me, a lot of that has its roots in social emotional learning, because not just the you know city of Nashville or the state of Tennessee, but every state in the nation has been struggling with student reading levels for decades. And we have all thrown as many programs and strategies and interventions at this as we possibly can. And, you know, not that there's not other ways of teaching reading. And, there, we, you know, I mentioned earlier the, um, the, the brain science that has come out and we're, we're learning new ways to be able to be more effective. But I really believe at the base of this is if we don't address why kids aren't learning, not just why they're not learning reading, but why they're not learning, which, you know, really for a lot of them is that they don't feel safe or like they belong in their classrooms and in their communities, then they're not, it doesn't matter what we do for them academically, they're still not going to be able to learn. And so that's, for me, that's one of the main ways that I support that blueprint work as well is through that vehicle of, of social emotional learning. Thank you for explaining that. When we think about, and this is my last question in regards to, to being in the school and social emotional learning in the school, um, but I know a lot of educators, specifically around my, my age, um, as school's getting started, they're going through a lot of these training sessions. Several of them are going through SEL training. And I have to admit, a lot of people are kind of like, oh, another training, another training. And we already know our teachers are low paid. They give a lot for passion. It's, it's not a well-paying job. They do it for the kids. Um, but what would you want to say to some of those educators who are, are in the process of going through this SEL training and may have this kind of like, oh, it's just another training, but it's obviously needed. It is. And, it, you know, so much of any training is how it's presented, of course. Um, you know, I think some of the things that I'd want to say to them is one, SEL is not um, a lesson-based program that you can just do five minutes here or there and expect good things to happen. Um, Social-emotional learning needs to be something that's embedded throughout your entire day. Um, every, every moment of our day that we're interacting with another person or we're interacting with ourselves in the sense of having to, say, manage with impulse control, like I'm supposed to be paying attention to the teacher, but I want to be thinking about what's for lunch, right? Um, we're, we're practicing those social-emotional skills, um, or at least we will if our teachers help and our, the adults around us can help us learn them as students. Um, and so it's, it's something that needs to take place all day long. Um, but it's also something that requires, I think, a lot of grace for the adults. Um, one of the phrases that I try and um, do a lot of my work by is high expectations, high grace. So while, you know, I would say that, you know, SCL practices need to be practiced all day, which sounds really exhausting. Um, it's, you know, it's also something that I mentioned earlier that adults need to be practicing within themselves, which on top of everything else they have to do as teachers is really exhausting. Um, and then understanding that it's going to take some time. This is not a quick fix. We're not looking to put a Band-Aid on anything with, with SEL practices. This is, we're, we're literally helping um, teach kids the executive skills that they're going to need for the rest of their life. And those skills really won't be solidified even if they're taught, which they have to be explicitly taught, until they're 25 when their brains finish growing. So if you're teaching fourth graders, which I used to teach, for example, your nine and 10 year olds, um, is it going to be perfect? It's never gonna be perfect. 
Um, So it's going to be frustrating and it's going to be hard, but it's going to be better than it would be if you don't use it. Um, One of the reasons that I'm so invested in working with teachers around social emotional learning and trauma sensitive practices is because I want them to have the tools that I wish I had had as a fourth grade teacher back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Because those those skills that you're always wishing, or at least I, I was always wishing that I had to help those kids, um, like you mentioned with your mom, who are struggling with things going on at home, or they're struggling with something about their learning, and school's hard, and so that doesn't make them feel safe. The, these skills are the skills then that we can give them and use to create space for them where they can you know, put down that armor, feel safe, and feel connection with you so that they can grow and learn. I understand this is your area of expertise, Elandriel, but I I am going to ask this question because I'm curious. And and it kind of seems to me SEL, once it's practiced over and over, especially for those those adults who really have to work on it within themselves first before kind of presenting it as an example to students, how long did it take for you specifically to really... Have practiced it so much, it was almost second nature to the point where you weren't really thinking about doing it anymore. It was just happening. I'll let you know when I get there. Okay. <laughs> That's an honest, uh, honest answer. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just in conscious discipline, we talk that, you know, it, it, it takes like three to five years to get pretty good at it. And um, there, are, there are definitely um, techniques and things that I've gotten pretty good at. Um, composure. I've gotten pretty good at at maintaining my composure in most situations, Um, having positive intent for other people, which helps me maintain my composure. So there's some of those discrete skills that I know I've gotten good at. There's other ones that I'm continuing to work on. Um, I joke with my teachers that I feel like I'm at the point in my journey where when I screw up, I go, oh, I screwed up there instead of being completely oblivious to my screw up. So um, I think personally, that's a big step. and, you know, we we talk within um, conscious discipline and social emotional learning and all those practices that it's, it's really a journey. And it's because these are skills that at their heart of them are about what makes us human and help us, you know, in connection with ourselves and with others. We know, since we never stop being human, it's never something that we stop learning. Plus, a lot of us, and I, I know I say speak for myself, and I'm, I'm sure I speak for a lot of others. You know, we're we're going against the programming that we got from adults around us when we were little. And I say this without blame, because our the adults around us also were programmed by the adults around them, and it just keeps going until you learn differently. And part of it again that that brain science has taught us better ways of dealing with ourselves and others and um but it's it's a journey and it takes i don't know how long it takes you know but the more um the more i work at it the better not just i am in you know i don't have classes of kids now but i have classes of teachers so not just a better teacher of teachers am i but i'm also a better coworker. i'm a better spouse i'm a better parent it feeds into every aspect and i you know in, in speaking with other people who have been on similar journeys it's the same thing um, for them as well um so while it's not something that you can say um that i can say like hey yeah i've got it and Oh, let me teach you how to do it, too. Um, it is every step along the way, you see benefits at the same time, if that makes sense. 
It does. And, and let me ask you this as well, because I, I like how you said it kind of um, goes into every fraction of your life, mm-hmm. your personal life, your professional life, from your family life to your friend's life. Yeah. It, it, it touches every part of your life. Um, do you get tired of it? <laughs> Can it be tiresome? No. Oh, so, so I will say, so I would say there's a difference between um, it being something I'm bored with and something that wears me out sometimes. Do sometimes I just want to be mad at the guy who cut me off? Yeah. And sometimes I let myself be, right? But I also know if I'm mad, I'm not as good of a driver in the case of this scenario, right? So I don't want to be. But when I'm not having a great day or, you know, things are going, because just like things go on in kids' lives, things go on in our lives too, right? Um, Family members get sick, you know, stuff, maybe, you know, I have deadlines at work. Um, Those days are harder. The more I practice these, there's skills that I don't still don't have to worry about as much, but there's skills maybe that I'm working on right now that feel more exhausting, if that's a good word. But I never get bored of them because I'm always seeing the benefits of them. Because even if I'm having a bad day and somebody cuts me off and I really just want to be ticked off at the guy and I work to, okay, I don't want to be a safe driver, so I'm going to calm down. As soon as I'm calm, I feel so much better that it was totally worth it. In the moment, it may feel like, oh, I don't want to do this. Right, right. But after I do it, I'm like, oh, it's sort of like exercising in a way, right? Like, no, I don't want to get up at 4.30 in the morning and go do yoga. But as soon as I do the yoga, man, I feel good. And it's the same with this because you get rid of all the toxic hormones in your body that stress creates because a lot of this is just self-preservation. This is big self-care stuff because we know those stress hormones are bad for us like cortisol. Get rid of those stress hormones, you feel better. You get some of the more positive hormones in there. And um, what we in conscious discipline call joy juice. And you, you just feel better. And not only that, but, you know, your health improves, your immunity improves, just all of that. So it's good stuff. And you kind of, as you were speaking and, and kind of um, painting a picture of just being better people mm-hmm. in general, um, I, I wanted to ask you this. In a, in a perfect world, maybe two or three, de- let's say four decades down the line, where would you like to see the SEL, social emotional community at? Um, compared to where we are now? So I guess I would say maybe that it's not a community in the sense that it's a small amount of people, that this is just the way we do things. This is just the practice. There may be people who are a little more invested, just like there are some people who are more invested, say, in reading, you know, or in math or in in sciences. Um, But everybody understands that this is part of their work because it's part of being human, and we're all human. So at some point that there's there's no questions to the validity, there's no... um, None of this, I'm going to teach the kids, but I'm not going to model it because those kids will have grown up and naturally model it. Um, and so it's it's more that it's embedded within our global community um, because it's not just here in Tennessee or here in the States that we're working on SEL. It's, you know, all over the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would hope that it becomes something that is not even given a second thought almost because it's so embedded in our practice. In my talks with professionals who work in early childhood education, I've heard the term kids need to be outside a lot recently. And there seems to be a movement, at least by early childhood educators, to try and get young children outdoors to play and learn as a part of environmental education or EE. 
Uh, can you talk about more about environmental education and why it's so important? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, another area that I'm super um, passionate about. And really, the more I um, work in both social emotional learning and environmental education, the more that I find that they're just intrinsically intertwined. And it's because of a lot of the benefits that we get um, by being outdoors. Um and so when a lot of people think about environmental education, um, the first thing that they'll usually think about if, if they know anything about it is learning about um, environmental science, for example, um, learning about the outside world. So taking a look, say we take the kids outside and we learn about the water table and um, how pollution affects things, um, looking at tadpoles, stuff like that. I also and, and that's really important because, you know, we um learning things in context is is a whole lot more valuable than learning things in isolation and unfortunately we do tend to teach environmental science indoors a lot um, whereas you know learning things about outdoors outdoors makes more sense um, but for me it also is just simply about getting kids outside more and learning within the context of the outdoor environment um, whether that's you know taking your you know um, guided reading activity outside or taking you know in, in early ed taking your um, center time outside um, but but taking kids outside, we've show, have been seeing that it creates tremendous benefits, not just physically, but socially and emotionally as well, which then benefits their academic achievement. Um, you know, ultimately, what we're seeing is getting kids outside more um, helps kids learn better, achieve better. It's been shown to um, increase greener school areas, been shown to increase um, scores on standardized tests, as well as shown some initial um, movement in kids' GPAs too by just getting them outside and having greener spaces for them to explore. The statistics speaks for themselves. And it feels like, however, at least in Tennessee, there seems to be a movement by certain school districts, many school districts rather, that are narrowing the time of recess and outdoor play to smaller and smaller sections or time in, in general. If you were, were to speak on that... Elandria, what would you say? I'd be happy to speak on that. Um, <laughs> I actually have, have been speaking about that a couple of uh, times recently. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting because we've gone in the last, and, and I, I should say this is not, um, Tennessee's not alone in this. Um, it just happens to be the state I live in, so it's the one I'm paying attention to. Um, but we've gone um, in the last four years from uh, a law that had uh, kiddos in early elementary having at least three 15-minute um, separate outdoor recess times a day to now to only one. And for example, my daughter who goes to, at, is in a metro school, um, gets her one 20-minute recess at about 1.30 in the afternoon and school gets out at three. Like that's just not, it's not developmentally appropriate. Um, and that's that's not her school's fault. That is really just what is happening, not just within that district, but within the state as well. And um, it's it's a trend that we're seeing, unfortunately, you know, across, across the nation. Um, there's this idea that in order to um, support academic achievement, we must spend more time on academics um, inside the classroom. So a kid, for example, who may be struggling with reading um, may come to school early um, and, you know, get extra tutoring time with their teacher, which is awesome, but may spend time at recess instead of going outside to play. They're, you know, doing some reading recovery. They may even, you know, belong to a reading club after school. So all those times when, you know, he or she could have been outside learning or outside outside even just playing, um, 
has been taken away in the name of academic achievement. When what we're seeing from the research um, is that the irony is if we get our kids outside more, um, not just for recess, because while that's really important, we can just be taking our kids outside for regular lessons. Um, and we're seeing that they, they actually will learn more. In fact, um, one of uh, my favorite researchers, Ming Kuo, and I'm that kind of nerd, I have favorite researchers, <laughs> um, and from the University of Illinois, um, she's uh, actually proven that um, kids who experience the exact same language arts lesson outdoors as indoors actually learn more and retain more longer from that exact same language arts lesson than their cohorts that were learning inside. So they're not even learning stuff that pertains to the outdoor environment. Um, you know, they may be doing a writer's workshop on, you know, um, some sort of topic that they've been learning about, and they're still going to learn more, and yet we're keeping kids inside longer. Um, plus, you've got all the research that shows, you know, more physical activity boosts things like GPA um, and boosts things like standardized test scores. Um, and yet again, we're laboring under this assumption that, nope, we got to keep kids inside, and it's really ironic and really unfortunate. Well, who can people talk to if our listeners are listening to this and they agree? Like, who can they reach out to? Have you reached out to anybody? How can this begin to change if research and statistics and, and numbers show this, and yet policy is going the exact opposite right. direction? Yeah, and so that's that's such a good question, right? Um, because I, I, I don't know if it's because of the generation that I'm from. I'm a Gen Xer, and I, I guess we're getting to be one of the older generations now, which is weird. Um, <laughs> I digress. But, you know, I, I don't know if it's because of that or just my personality. But while I've been very passionate about a lot of these topics, I haven't been very much of an activist in a lot of them. And one of my commitments that I've made recently to myself is that if I really believe in these things, then I need to be putting a stake in the ground and be talking about them more, be advocating more. Hence my talking to you about, you know what, I'd really like to talk about environmental education, getting kids outside more. We need to be doing that more. As far as um, actually making some changes, I think um, getting out and asking questions and and talking to people, you know, um, if, for example, it's one one of the things on my list of going and talking to my daughter's school of, hey, so why is it that we only have one outdoor time a day? Are there other ways? I get that that's our recess time, but are there other ways that we can work to get the kids outside more? Um, talking to the district about that. Um, and as well as talking to your elected officials. So the people who are on the school board that are for your area, as well as people who are on, um, you know, just elected officials in other areas, asking them these questions and letting them know that, A, this is important, um, and B, that it's not just because we think it is, and it sounds nice and touchy-feely, right? Like, oh, yes, kids need to be outside, and we all know they're staying inside playing video games. and. Um, it's not just that touchy-feely aspect that we actually have research that backs it up. Um, and uh, if anybody want to, wants to contact me at United Way, I'm happy to uh, give them that research. But yeah, I think it's just a matter of being willing to speak up about it um, as I go through my new journey of activism, too. Um, you know, I'll learn more and, uh, you know, 
be happy to share that with others. But right now, I think it's it's really about just start. Let's talk about it. Let's not just say, gee, I remember when I was a kid and I got to play outside or I got to go camping. Let's actually do something about it. And we can do things about it at home, too. So, you know, it's on one side when I teach teachers, I talk to them about how, you know, a lot of times kids don't get outside at home. And so it's our job as teachers to get them outside more at school. But on the flip side of that, as a parent, if I see my kids not getting outside as much at school as I want her to be, then we work at getting them outside more at home. So is there a reason that they have to do their homework at the kitchen table? Could they do their homework outside on the patio or do their reading outside? Um, what are ways that we can encourage um, our children to be outside more? And sometimes that's about modeling from the adult as well, kind of going back to what we were talking about with SCL, um, which is hard for some adults because there's a lot of adults that you know just aren't comfortable outside. Um, but one of the things that I often will, will tell them is that you know you think it's too cold or too rainy or too whatever. Your kids don't care. They really don't. You know, they're the ones running out the door when you're like, you should take a coat. And they don't even feel it um, because it's just the way little bodies are. Um, And so if we can just kind of, you know, put on our coats and put on our hats or whatever it is that we have to do to be comfortable and just try and get our kids outside more. I think that's one of the most um, powerful things that we can do is um, just make sure that we're not just encouraging that at school, but supporting it at home because, you know, a, a kid isn't just a kid at school. Or at home, it's it's a whole child. Thank you for explaining that, Elandria. I think this whole conversation in general, if we kind of kind of bring it down into a little bubble, it appears both with SEL and EE. I almost said EEE, but <laughs> SEL and EE, environmental learning, it really is all about being the best human you can be and in the world around us in general, and that that typically means, when I say the world around us, I mean not the buildings built by humans. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Although that is, you know, part of our environment. environment and there's a lot of research out there that has been talking about how can we, if we know that we as humans need to be outside more, then how can we, if we need to be inside to do our work, how can we bring the outside in? And so there's actually a lot of work in... Um, around uh, psychology and organizational design and things like that in architecture about how do we marry those two necessities. So I'm really interested in Me that part. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, this is going to be my my time here with the Commission on Children and Youth was the first time I've been in an office building where there were windows and I could see out. Right. It makes all the difference. It makes so much difference. I have a huge window at United Way and I have joked, and I'm honestly, the longer I'm there, the more I'm less sure that it's a joke that if I lost my window, I'm not sure how long I'd stay. Um, but I mean, I love my work, but just being able to see the trees outside allows I'm so much more productive. Yeah, I agree. Is there anything I didn't ask uh, regarding either social emotional learning or environmental education that you'd like to talk about or make sure our listeners think about? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like like you said, uh, I think, you know, at the, the root of both SCL and EE, it's really it really is about, you know, being the best human you can be in the in the in the environment. And it's not necessarily somebody else's random definition of the best human. It's it's your definition of who you want that to be, which, you know, is is really nice. Um, and they, they, like I said before, they, they are so closely interwoven because um, one of the things that we're seeing about being outside is how much it supports 
um, our own social emotional growth as well, um, because people just tend to be happier, healthier, more peaceful when they're outside. In fact, you know, there's been research that has shown that um, neighborhoods with more greenery actually have less crime in them than neighborhoods that don't, um, and that's irrespective of socioeconomics as well, um, and, and as well as other factors. Um, so you, you have all of that. And then you have, you know, what does it mean to be the best human? Um, for me, it means being in, you know, because as humans, we have to be in relationship with others because we're, we're social creatures. Um, and even if we don't like people, somebody needs to grow our food and, you know, educate our kids and all that kind of stuff. So in being in relationship with others, how do we do that um, and support a positive community as well as a healthy one? And so one of the reasons that I feel like um, that environmental education and social emotional learning really um, interconnect is, you know, we've, I think we'd all agree that we've got a lot of issues going on in the world right now. Um, we can take, say, um, global climate change as an example of that. Um, a lot of people who are really invested in these issues have, you know, are really concerned as to why, particularly in America, a lot of people aren't plugging into these very, um, very urgent issues. Um, and I really think that there is, if we really want people to, to plug in to say to issues like the immigrant, immigrant and refugee crisis, to global climate change, um, and to pretty much any issue that you feel is important, um, we actually have to understand how um, how to plug into those issues. So if I, as a child, um, am not taught to really develop, say, compassion and empathy, then as I grow up, I'm not going to be too terribly concerned about, say, um, other people from other countries trying to come here. That's not going to cause me much concern because I haven't been able to cultivate that skill. Um, and so being able to um, cultivate the social emotional skills that that do really help us be our best selves um, also helps us plug in to those more global issues so that we can not just help us be our best selves, but help our community and our world be their best as well. And again, not in somebody else's you know high level definition, but in where we want it to be. Well put. Thank you so much for talking about that the, the way you did. I honestly want to sing Kumbaya and hold hands with someone yeah, right now. Yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> I'm singing that. I'd like to teach the world to sing, you know. I know. <laughs> Perfect harmony. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for being a guest on Roots and Wings. Is there anything else that I, you wanted to mention? No, just thank you so much for having me. Um, any chance I can get to talk about either of these topics is, is thrilling. Um, and uh, just thank if if our listeners were possibly a little bit more interested in learning a little bit more about SEL or EE, um, what's the best way? Should they go to the United Way website? Um, what would you advise? So we don't have a lot of resources on our website currently. Um, however, what I would suggest, um, I don't know if on your website they can, I'm more than happy to have people connect with me, so you're welcome to, to give them my email. Um, but in terms of social emotional learning, I would really recommend that they check out the Conscious Discipline website. Um, and that would be just ConsciousDiscipline.com. Um, they'll find a tremendous amount of resources um, that are free that they can access, um, whether they're parents, whether they're teachers, whether they're administrators, um, and be able to kind of dig a little bit more deeply into what social emotional learning is. And then when it um, when it comes to, say, environmental education, getting your kids outside more, um, 
there um, there are a lot of uh, a lot of resources out there and honestly what I would suggest you do is just Google you know getting kids outside more you know or whatever within that sphere that you really you know want so whether it's I want to learn more about um, why kids should be outside more or the health benefits or if you've got a child with um, ADHD for example how it benefits those children um, because while there's a, a lot of individual resources um, out there as well as books on, you know, how to connect, you know, activities you can do with your kids. Um, I really like to recommend that people connect with it in the interest path that most speaks to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think if if someone can relate to it just a little bit, uh, specifically in their line of whatever they're doing or however they're raising their children or their families, they'll probably actually do it. Yeah. And I just, I don't feel like there's a program quite like conscious discipline within the environmental education space that kind of is um, really accessible to a lot of different people. And so I usually, you know, while there are books that I definitely recommend, um, you know, they're, I, I usually recommend, you know, what is it specifically that you want to know? Um, like I mentioned, you know, if you've got a, a kid with ADHD and you want to know how does access to nature help, which it's been proven to help dramatically, then, you know, Google that. Google is your friend. You know everything Google knows. And um, and uh, take that path. Thank you so much for, again, sitting down with us, Elandrell. I truly appreciate having this wonderful conversation with you. And I hope we imparted at least a little bit of wisdom on some of our, our listeners. And thank you so much again. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. You've been listening to Roots and Wings on Jonquil Newland. Newland.